you know, we put so much pressure on ourselves to chase this ideal of happiness, which oftentimes equates to perfection, right? We need to have a perfect job. We need to, you know, make a lot of money and we need to have the perfect family, the perfect marriage, right? The perfect group of friends. And oftentimes when we're chasing this ideal happiness, it actually makes us feel even less happy. Hey there, welcome to the Happy Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew. On this podcast, we talk health, we talk well-being, Mondays and Thursdays. If you are new, you are very welcome. If you're coming back, well, thank you for stopping by once more. Remember, we have over 350 episodes in the Happy Habit Archive. You can dip into those as you wish. We're also on YouTube now. We have a Happy Habit Podcast YouTube channel where you can watch the interviews that I've been conducting in recent weeks. And we're also on Instagram too, where you will see some clips of some recent interviews and upcoming interviews too. Either way, if you're enjoying our content, please like, subscribe, share, and please do leave the podcast a positive review. It's free and it'll only take you two seconds. Now, today I'm joined by integrative psychiatrist, Dr. Gregory Scott Brown. He is a husband, a wellness advocate, a columnist for Men's Health magazine and the author of the new book titled The Self-Healing Mind, an essential five-step practice for overcoming anxiety and depression and revitalizing your life. In this episode, we define what mental health is we discuss why there is still a stigma attached with mental health issues. We explore whether celebrities who have been vocal about their mental health troubles are making a positive contribution to the mental health conversation. We hear about the inspirational story of Kevin Hines. Dr. Brown also talks about his own depression in his 20s and how it now informs his practice as a psychiatrist and that we explore some of the pillars of self-care outlined in his book. Let me welcome you uh, formally uh, to the podcast, uh, Dr. Gregory Scott Brown, author of the book, The Self-Healing Mind. And being a psychiatrist, you are a professional working in the mental health field. And I always like to frame any discussion I have on this podcast with a definition of the topic at hand. So for clarity's sake, can we define, first of all, what we mean when we use the term mental health? That is a great question. And it's actually highlighted in the opening chapters of my book. I think too often when we think about mental health, what we're really thinking about are mental illnesses, diagnosable mental illnesses like depression, anxiety, or we're thinking about topics like suicide. Now, these are important topics to consider, but what it can do is it can cause people who haven't necessarily seen a psychiatrist or haven't been diagnosed with a mental illness to think, well, you know, the topic of mental health isn't something that I can really relate to, and it's not for me. We know that that's not true. So mental health is the driving force that really determines the way we live, work, uh, interact with each other, and love. And we have to consider the fact that mental health is an important topic for anyone with a brain, anyone with a mind, and that includes all of us. And why do you think there continues to be such a stigma associated with the topic of mental health, given what you've just said there, everybody suffers at some point in time from a mental health issue? Well, I think one of the, the, the topics that causes people 
not to want to talk about it. It's this notion, uh, this misconception that mental health or mental illness somehow equates to being weak. Now, this is not a new idea. I mean, it's been, uh, you know, there since virtually the, the beginning of time. But I, I will say that I, I see the tide turning here. You know, I see more people coming out, sharing their stories. Um, and I don't only mean celebrities and people who are public figures, but, you know, people we encounter in our everyday lives. I know that, you know, I've, I've talked to friends and family members um, even before I became a, a psychiatrist who will say things like, you know, I, I've experienced anxiety time time or I've, I've experienced with burnout. So I think it's becoming a much less stigmatized topic in recent years than it was uh, previously. Well, talking about those big names that you just referenced there, there's Prince Harry, for example. Demi Lovato has spoken about her mental health woes and uh, Dwayne Johnson, too. Do you think they're commenting and they're being as vocal as they have been on their mental health issues? Do you think that has contributed positively to the discussion of mental health? Absolutely. Without a doubt. I mean, I can come on here as a psychiatrist who's five feet, eight inches tall and 145 pounds and talk about my experience with anxiety or depression in the past. But when you have someone like The Rock, right, talking about experiencing anxiety, imagine how many, or, or any mental illness uh, or mental health concern, imagine how many young people would literally look up to someone like that and think, you know, if, if this person can be vulnerable, uh, so can I. Uh, I recently did an interview with Kevin Love of the Miley Heat for Men's Health Magazine. And many of us know that, you know, Kevin uh, had a panic attack during a game several years ago, during an NBA game. And he actually ended up writing a beautiful article for the Players' Tribune, sharing his experience. And since then, has just become a staunch advocate for mental health. And, you know, I, I appreciate the work Kevin is doing, but I think that the fact that he's come out as... Uh, an NBA basketball player who's almost seven feet tall, really the epitome of masculinity and allowed himself to be vulnerable by sharing his mental health and wellness journey. I think it's so inspirational and I think it's actually allowed other people to feel more comfortable sharing their stories as well. Do you think your own experience of suffering from depression in your 20s, as you've detailed in various interviews in recent times, do you think that informs your own experience and your own ability to relate to your own patients when they come to you with mental health issues? Absolutely, it does. And I'll tell you, you know, I at the time when I was dealing with depression, I didn't feel comfortable, uh, had trouble connecting with the psychiatrist. I didn't feel comfortable opening up about what I was going through with my family and friends. And I think having that personal experience has allowed me to be much more empathetic as a psychiatrist to what some of my patients are enduring. But I'll tell you, there are a lot of psychiatrists, there are a lot of engineers, there are a lot of high school teachers, and, uh, postal workers who are enduring the same experience. Um, you know, millions, tens of millions of people in the United States and even more around the world are struggling with anxiety and depression. So again, I think the, the more that we share our stories, uh, the more that we can see mental health as a, a humanistic uh, topic rather than something that uh, needs to be marginalized or stigmatized. 
I love your mantra to live with purpose, balance and contentment as well as hope. Uh, I love that. Uh, I think there's less pressure to live being content rather than happy. Certainly contentedness is probably more achievable. Right. I, I you know, I, I'm thinking so much about this topic recently. I, I wrote a, a story for The Washington Post about it. I wrote a story for Men's Health about it. You know, we put so much pressure on ourselves to chase this ideal of happiness, which oftentimes equates to perfection, right? We need to have a perfect job. We need to, you know, make a lot of money. We need to have the perfect family, the perfect marriage, right? The perfect group of friends. And oftentimes when we're chasing this ideal of happiness, it actually makes us feel even less happy uh, than we would if we would just focus on the things that really matter, finding fulfillment, finding contentment in our lives, being uh, okay with who we are, grateful for what we have, uh, at the same time still remaining optimistic about the future. I think that can actually help us um, find more gratitude and peace uh, about where we are today. Central to the book are the five pillars of self-care. Can we dip into a couple of these, please? Because they really speak to me, especially the attention to the breath, which I love, the 478 method. Can we talk about that? Sure, I mean, breath work, in my view, is the most underutilized tool in all of medicine, right? Think, think about it. We take between 20 and 30,000 breaths every single day, and most of us never even stop and pay attention to one of those breaths. We're the subconscious process, right? But when we manipulate the way we breathe in a way that is conducive with science, and I don't just mean breathe in and out, right? Uh, but methods like the 478 technique, where you inhale for four seconds, hold for seven seconds, and exhale for eight seconds, that longer exhale science has indicated can actually help activate the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the rest and digest arm of the autonomic nervous system, the opposite of the fight or flight response, uh, if you will. Uh, the other thing that it can do is help uh, enhance, uh, you know, the production of GABA, which is an inhibitory neurotransmitter in the brain. And if you were to actually um, hook up an EEG lead to someone's brain while they're uh, manipulating their breath, you know, practicing some of these techniques I outlined in the book, you'll see uh, an increased presence of alpha waves. Now, this is all science talk here, but what all of these are doing is they're indicating a state of calm, peace, relaxation, reduction, anxiety. So again, breath work is, is a powerful tool. Now, just on anxiety before we head to a couple of the other pillars, anxiety is essential. We all need some degree of anxiety. It's not uh, abnormal to have a certain amount of anxiety. We, we need it to function. That's right. I mean, imagine if, if we woke up uh, on a Monday morning and there was there was no no anxiety at all. I mean, most of us, most of us wouldn't have any drive or motivation to get up and, and go to the office uh, if we didn't experience some degree of anxiety uh, financial anxiety, if you will, again, you know, cognizant of the fact that, you know, there are a lot of people out there struggling, but again, that's what allows us to get up, go to work, um, you know, pay our mortgage, pay our rent, because we need some of that in order to survive. Now, anxiety becomes problematic when it tips over the edge and begins to cause functional impairment, 
where it's not actually helping us find the motivation to live our lives, where it's hindering our ability to do that. So if anxiety starts to prevent you from interacting with your friends or your spouse in a constructive way, or it prevents you from being able to get your job done at the office, then at that point, it might make sense to either talk to a family member or a friend about it initially, and, and perhaps even reach out to a mental health professional. Another pillar of self-care you outline in the book is that of the importance of sleep. Sure. Right. And so, again, sleep and mental health have a bi-directional relationship. I remember back uh, when I was training in, in residency, you know, folks would come in burned out. Uh, they would come in anxious, depressed to the inpatient unit. And sometimes the only thing they needed was, you know, three or four nights of optimal sleep that they weren't getting outside of a hospital setting. Now, some things that we can do on our own to help enhance the uh, sleep quality that we're getting is to focus on the, the temperature of our bedrooms. So the ideal temperature kind of leans on the cooler side than on the warmer side. That's what science has indicated. Uh, we want to make sure, and this is a huge issue, especially post-COVID, that we want to limit the amount of screen time um, 30 minutes to an hour before bedtime. So we're on our, our smartphones or our tablets or watching TV. And, and the reason the science behind this is because blue and green wavelengths of light that are emitted by our smart devices actually hinder the release of melatonin, which is important for sleep uh, quality. And then the other thing that I, I, if I may, is that, you know, creating a bedtime routine. Uh, can actually help, you know, 30 minutes to an hour before bedtime, whether that means taking a warm bath, you know, or reading a good book, just something that we're doing every day that's telling our mind and our body that we're settling down, that it's time to get some, some good rest. When we're talking about feeling down and we're talking about sadness, there is a distinction between sadness and depression. Everybody feels sad at one time or another. And similarly, everybody feels anxious at one time or another. But just because one is sad doesn't necessarily mean to say one is depressed. And then in addition to that, how is depression different from sadness? What signs should we be looking for? You know, I would actually I would actually argue and you're right about that. Everyone experiences sadness, right? Uh, from time to time. So depression, if you're looking at the way it's diagnosed in the DSM, which is the psychiatrist Bible, uh, if you will, I mean, you're looking at at least a two-week period where you're experiencing a constellation of symptoms. So it could be depressed mood, disturbances in sleep, you're not interested in things that you're, you're once were interested in, you're experiencing guilt or worthlessness, uh, someone might experience loss of appetite, um, psychomotor symptoms, meaning you just feel like your body is heavy and you're just dragging yourself through every single day. Uh, and God forbid, you know, experiencing suicidal thoughts, uh, which is uh, unfortunately uh, far too, too common. So again, depression wouldn't just mean one thing. So if you're just having trouble sleeping or you feel low, um, that wouldn't necessarily warrant a diagnosis of major depressive disorder. Now, something interesting that I've learned from thousands of conversations with patients is that oftentimes when people come to me and they're depressed, when a patient comes to me, 
sadness is not what they're describing. It very rarely does, does a depressed patient tell me they're feeling sad. What they're telling me is that they're not able to feel anything. They feel numb. They feel apathetic. They feel disconnected from themselves, disconnected from their environments. And oftentimes being able to feel sad or being able to, to cry again, um, you know, is something that people either experience when they're uh, diving down into a depressive episode before they've hit bottom or ironically enough, when they're emerging from that, they start to experience some of their emotions again. So it's it's a very nuanced uh, diagnosis. So it's a myth then when people think that sadness should be equated with depression. What you're saying is that people are completely devoid of emotion if they're feeling depressed. What, I, what I'm saying here is that depression is, is nuanced. And I think right. if, if we're saying that it's just this thing or it's just this thing, I think we're missing a broader picture. Um, do some people who are experiencing depression experience sadness? Absolutely. Do some people who are experiencing depression experience periods of happiness? That's true too, right? It's a nuanced diagnosis, but the most important thing to keep in mind is that it's a constellation of symptoms. It's not just one thing. Kevin Hines, a man who experienced a great degree of depression in his life and at one point thought of throwing himself off the Golden Gate Bridge. Kevin is someone that I am uh, grateful to have gotten uh, to know over the past couple of years. I've done a couple of interviews with Kevin. So when Kevin Hines was in his late teens, I believe he was 18 or 19 uh, years old. He was living in San Francisco. Uh, he was struggling with bipolar disorder, but he woke up one morning and essentially decided that this was the day that he was going to end his life. He took a bus uh, out to the Golden Gate Bridge, uh, paced on the bridge back and forth, I believe for about 40 minutes, uh, and then decided to jump. And Kevin was one of the, you know, 2% of people that actually survived that jump. And now Kevin has gone on to become, you know, just one of one of the most incredible advocates for mental health and suicide prevention. And he'll be the first person to tell you that as soon as he jumped, he, he regretted that. He regretted that. And studies have actually shown, you know, they've looked at scientists have looked at uh, survivors of um, people who attempted. Uh, to end their lives by doing the same thing with Golden Gate Bridge and found that that was one of the uh, most common, um, you know, common ideas of Long Island was that they needed to put a barrier on the bridge just to give people more time even to wrestle with that decision. Now, Kevin is someone that I admire because, you know, they'll tell you that his mental health journey today, some 20 years later, includes a combination of professional health, therapy, medication, self-care, all of it. Uh, and that's what's uh, essentially helping him uh, today. It's a very, very inspiring story. It is. It's a terrific good news story. And I wanted to bring it into our conversation today. In my research for this particular interview, I happened upon an interview that you did with Ryan Seacrest, maybe probably about a year or so ago, on the subject of gratitude and the importance of cataloging or journaling gratitude. Yeah. So studies have shown that gratitude actually has physiological effects um, 
as well as mental health effects when it comes to our overall health. So keeping gratitude journal, uh, one study has shown can improve uh, heart rate variability in cardiac uh, patients. Um, I mean, gratitude in many ways is also one of the essential pillars of positive psychology, right? So if we're able to uh, stay optimistic, we're able to find gratitude for the things that we do have in our lives today, you know, that can help us in many ways carry us to uh, tomorrow. Something else I'll just uh, throw in here is that studies have also shown that being future-oriented, you know, if we're just planning ahead, that's one of the protective factors against suicide that not very many people know about, right? So if you see someone as doctors and you see someone come into the emergency room, if they're planning ahead, if they're they're looking forward to tomorrow, next week, you know, three months from now, um, and they're able to find gratitude even in you know things that could potentially lie ahead, studies have shown that that's protective against suicide. So, so gratitude is a powerful force. And gratitude and so simple as well. Uh, you also talk in the book about resilience and about the fact that genetics shouldn't necessarily be a, a limiting factor. What role does resilience play as far as fortifying our mental health is concerned? So again, we have to make sure that we are differentiating between resiliency and grit here, right? So oftentimes we are we're terrible when it comes to doing this myth. <laughs> I'll say, I mean, we're presented with a problem, right? We just want to keep pushing and pushing and pushing. Uh, and when we're thinking about resiliency, it, it really requires being adaptable, right? Um, and a lot of this, a lot of this research and science stems from uh, Marshall Linehan. So she's an esteemed psychologist who has coined this term radical acceptance that some people have heard about. And what radical acceptance is, is if you can imagine you have this mountain in front of you. Now, we all have these mountains in our life, right? The mountain can be a job that we hate. The mountain can be uh, a terrible marriage. The mountain can be, you know, just financial stress or whatever, right? And so grit might mean, you know, you're just banging your head against the mountain. You're trying to plow through it. You're trying to roll the mountain up that the mountain will disappear, which is wishful thinking. And so radical acceptance would mean, okay, you know, I need to learn how to accept the things that I can't change, which doesn't mean that you're giving up, but focus on the things that you have control over. That's being adaptable. That's being resilient. And so in our lives, again, if we're still using this metaphor of the mountain, that might mean we're walking around the mountain. Right, developing a strategy to climb the mountain or to sit with the mountain for a little while um, until we can really develop a strategy uh, to get around it. That, that, in my view, is at the bedrock of this idea of resiliency. Well, from the mountain to the good wolf, which I think is a great analogy, can you talk to us about this? Right. So the, the good wolf, is essentially, um, this was a Native American tale uh, when... You know, a, a kid was basically listening to a story about how within each of us, we have a, a good wolf, essentially, and a bad wolf. One wolf is full of light and hope. The other wolf is full of darkness and despair. And the two wolves are engaged in a fight. And I think that we can all relate to this story, right? 
Um, and then the yellow boy asked the elder, so which, which wolf will win this fight? And the elder said, the wolf that you feed, right? And so again, it's a, it's a story that goes back to this idea of gratitude. We feed gratitude. That's what we're going to get more of in our life. If we feed hope, we're going to get more of that in our life. If we feed optimism, we're going to get more of that uh, in our life. And it, again, that is the core of the school of positive psychology. It really is. There's so much great advice there. And uh, you touched upon the subject of spirituality, too. And uh, I can't remember the actual term again, but you you talk about we are spiritual um, beings with a, a human element rather than humans with a spiritual element. Have I got that right? So spirituality, I'll tell you, it's one of the um, one of the most provocative conversations I have with my patients. I love talking about spirituality. Uh, and one of the reasons is because Usually when I ask patients, you know, how is spirituality important uh, for you? I'd, I'd say about half half of the time we'll say, oh, well, doc, I'm, I'm not religious, right? Uh, but then they'll go on to say, but I still think it's really important, right? Uh, and so what I find fascinating about, and this is so true, I mean, you don't need to be religious to uh, find purpose and meaning in spirituality, right? Um now, if you are religious, that's great because studies have shown that religious prayer is beneficial for people who believe in a higher power like God, right? But spirituality is also about connection, right? Where that means, um, you know, connecting with other people in your environment through volunteering your time or connecting with your inner self through meditation. And if, if I may just briefly here, so... Uh, what studies have shown is that spirituality, tapping into that inner spirituality, um, can actually help quiet an area in the brain or reduce an act activity in the area of the brain called the default mode network, which tends to be overly active or hyperactive when we're burned out or stressed or anxious. So spirituality is a, it's a powerful tool. Before I let you go, can you give me your website if people want to find out more about you? Yes. So my website is gregoryscottbrown.com. And I'm also on uh, social media, Gregory S. Brown MD. Well, the book is a terrific read. It's called The Self-Healing Mind. Dr. Gregory Scott Brown, thank you so much for taking the time to join me on the podcast today. Really appreciate it. Appreciate it so much. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for listening to this edition of the Happy Habit Podcast. If you're enjoying tuning in, please like, subscribe, share, and do leave the podcast a positive review. Until next time, stay happy. Mm -hmm.